Morning, family. How's everybody doing? Uh, it's so good to see you all, and I've missed you over the last two weeks, and I uh, really look forward to be with you today. Last week, as you know, we had Pastor Charles the Kibbit minister here, and I was ministering at Central Baptist Church, so that was great fun, and it was wonderful, and, uh, but it's really good to be with you today and to enjoy this day with you. We've uh, been considering for a period of time now and just looking at just what God is doing in our services, and I think you'll agree with me in a very rich time of just God's moving during our services and just so many things that are happening, and, and uh, we just felt as a leadership and some of the feedback we got from people that it may be appropriate at this point in time to just give ourselves a little bit of space in terms of the services and the times of the services. So what are we going to ask for you, those of you that have public transport, that although we'll always try and do our best and 11 o'clock remains our time that we want to end the service, we know that some of you have tr public transport and when we go over it becomes a little difficult for you. So you may want to consider just to you know, arrange your public transport in such a way that at quarter past perhaps it'll be better for you to know that you know, that they're not waiting for you and you have to rush out, out of the end of the service. So uh, please consider to do that if, if that works for you in that way. Um, as we are, as you know, we are busy participating in the 120 series and just being really excited at what God's doing in our city over just this time. And in, on Wednesday morning, I had a meeting with some of the some smaller group of church leaders in the city, and we were just discussing things and just considering our city and the climate of our city and just celebrating, in a sense, what God has done in this city over the last how, however many years, and that we can be at this point where, as churches, we can cross over, in a sense, even in terms of our preaching, and be sharing the same things at this point in time. And, and the focus of the series this May, One Life, has really been about how we present and carry the gospel as witnesses into the world. And it really fits in so well with where we've been with the book of Acts, and uh, we want to continue on with that today and continue to share and think about our truth that we carry, if I can use that term, and how we carry that into the world around us. Now, the verse that we were given for this week and that we want to consider together and in, across the city is this well-known portion of Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3. Now, the, the part of the verse, I'm going to read from verse 13 to 15 with you now, but I think the part of the verse that most of us will know pretty well is that where it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. How many of you know that verse that says we always have to be ready to give an answer, or some translation says a defense for the reason for the hope that we have? Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had, for instance, Amy or Ewing speak here, and, and she would be what would be called a, an apologist. And that's the discipline in, in Christianity that goes about, and is specifically about that, trying to defend our faith against the attacks that are in, against our faith in the world. When people in the world say that Christianity really you know, doesn't have a place anymore, it, it doesn't belong anymore, it's not true, and, and then we have apologists and people that stand and say, no, we defend our faith. The interesting thing about this scripture, though, is it says to all of us that we always have to be prepared to give a defense or to give an answer for the reason, for the hope. Now, I don't know about you, but that sometimes feels a bit scary because you feel, you know, I haven't studied philosophy and I, I don't know how to do that. I don't have all these big answers for the questions people ask, and you know, surely I can't be that person that will defend the gospel and, and stand up and, and have answers for all the questions that people have. 
But I think when we go down that route, although there is space for people to do that, although that's necessary and we, we thankful for people like Ravi Zacharias Ministries that goes into campuses and business places and, and do that and defend the faith, I don't think that's exactly what this verse tells us that we have to be able to do, and I don't think that's really the focus of the Scripture. And I want to propose to you something, and, but before I do that, let's read the, the whole portion there, just those couple of verses from verse 13 to 15. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats or fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The little portion of that scripture where I want to stand still for a little while first this morning is, is those words where it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The reason for the hope that you have. When we proclaim as human beings we have hope in any situation, it's important that we consider in, by what reason do I have hope? Because hope in and of itself doesn't really have the power as when hope is based in something, has a reason. I'm a Manchester United supporter. Yay! Thank you very much. And I have a hope that we're going to make it and play in Europe next year. I have a hope. It's a slim hope at this time, but it's a hope. The reason for my hope is based in our coach, Mr. Mourinho, and it's based in some of our players. That's why I have a reason for hope. I have a hope. I don't have so much hope for the Bulls anymore. <laughs> there my hope has left me because I have no reason for hope. Hope is based and, and founded in a reason. Whenever we walk around and we say, I hope, the question is, why do I hope? Why, why do I believe in a positive outcome or have a hope? If you think of our nation currently, lots of people may say they have no hope. And that if they say that, there's a reason they say it. But if you and I proclaim we have a hope for this country, we have a hope for things, what is the reason for that hope? What do we base that hope in? Is our, is our hope based in some clever person or some person that we think is going to provide all the answers for us? Is it, is it based in some organization? Is it based in what is the reason for the hope that you have? And when the scripture talks to us and Peter writes to fellow believers, he says, you must be ready not to defend the hope that you have, but to defend the reason for the hope. Now, do you have hope for our nation? I want to ask you this morning. Do you have hope for our nation? How many of you say, I have hope for our nation? That's wonderful. Why do you have hope for our nation? What is the reason for your hope? Mike does this. How many of you believe this is the reason for our hope? What is the reason for our hope? It's Jesus. Now, is that a reasonable hope to have? Why is that a reasonable hope to have? Why if everybody else says this, or, or many may say there's no hope, and why if some say the hope for the reason is this, or the reason for the hope for our nation is this, or this organization, or this grouping, or this person, why do we say, no, 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 the reason for our hope is Jesus? Why do we say that? 
Why, how, can, how dare we stand up and proclaim that? Because for many people, and Amy or Ewing spoke about it, she said, for many people they think that a Christian faith is just some form of escapism. It's some way, our crutch, that we just deal with the realities of life. and It just makes us feel better at the end of the day. We can go to bed and sleep at night and say, oh, thank you, I've got Jesus. And He just helps me and, and, and life. But it's actually, we're just trying to ignore the problems. Do you ignore the problems that you see around you? And because you ignore the problems, you say, Jesus is the answer. Come on. Woo. No, we don't. We can read the papers, we can look at the problems, we can discuss, we can talk, we can define and see the problems we have and say these are real challenges and real issues that we have. But I have hope because of Jesus. But I have hope. And as a believer, actually, we say no matter what you throw at us, our hope will never, never cease. We will always have hope. We will never stop having hope. Because our hope, the reason for our hope, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one by whom all things were made and for whom all things were made, the one who is the giver of life, the Prince of peace, the Lord of the hosts is the reason for our hope. The God that existed long before everything else existed is the reason for my hope. Does that sound to you like a solid reason for hope? Not some temporal thing. Not some power that we can look at now and say, wow, this, this will get us through. The scripture says that men trust in chariots. Men trust in kings. And it's easy to have hope when on our, on our human level, things are going well and we've got good leadership and good rulers and, 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 thing, and our army is strong and, and our economy is strong and the land strong and everything strong. And then we say, yeah, we've got hope for the future. Think of Rome, the eternal city, that great city, that in the time of Christ and in and, and, and the times around that time, you couldn't go anywhere in the world and not feel the power of Rome. The Caesars were gods. All roads led to Rome. Rome seemed invincible. Rome seemed like it would be eternally ruling. Today you go, I haven't had the privilege, but today you go to Rome. And you go and visit the ruins, the remnant that's left over of the eternal city. Every power that has existed on this planet that is based in man rises and falls, rises and falls. And some may seem in its time, and for hundreds of years, some may seem like it'll never come to an end. And therefore, people put their hope in those things. And their hope will always lead to disappointment. Because nothing made by man and for man will stand forever. The reason for our hope is the eternal Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the reason for our hope. That's the reason we hope. Can you defend and give an answer for the reason of the hope you have? here in 2017. We are not stupid people. That despite all the realities and all everything that's going on, we keep a smile and we're these optimistic, you know, 
giddy Christians that run around and, oh, life's wonderful because I've got Jesus. And everybody else goes, oh. No. We live with the hope that is within us. And we see and we experience and we cry and our hearts break and we struggle with all of this that's going on, but we have hope. We have hope. And it's not a South African thing. I just landed in our context, but it's a worldwide thing. Every place you go, the reason for the hope is the same. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. But we live in interesting times. We live in interesting times where when you stand up and you start saying what I'm saying in certain contexts, it will not go down well. You will not get applauded. If I had to stand up in a university lecture hall and proclaim what I'm boldly proclaiming to you today, most of the people will think I am stupid. I would easily be said as, that's great if that's what you believe and if that works for you, if that's the Kool-Aid you need to drink to get you through the day, brilliant. But you're not being very real. That's the days we live in. And more than just in those academic spaces and, and high places, just in our everyday lives, we struggle with this reality. And I think this, it's for this reason that Paul, Peter writes these words and he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And it's like a little rhetorical question he throws in there. It's almost a ridiculous question. Who's going to harm people that want to do good? It's like nobody. But how many of you know that we get opposition when we want to do good? As Christians, because let's be honest with one another here this morning. If, if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, the, 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 the hope of my life, the, 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 what I'm working for is simply to help other people and to make their lives better. I'm a bearer of good news. I'm a servant of people. Now, I know sometimes we fail and we don't live up to the standards of the Scripture, and, and, and throughout history we failed sometimes as Christians, but every time the Spirit brings us back and says, this is what the Word says. And our basic reasoning, I mean, when you go to work tomorrow, you're not going to work to go and hurt anybody or harm anybody. Your desire as a Christian is to do good, to see good established, to see good and right and proper things be, be, be done in our society. And you firmly believe that if you do good, You'll be a positive influence and you'll, you'll change things for the better. Is that, is that true? Isn't that our basic reasoning as a Christian? I just, I just want to do good for people. And Jesus works in me and, and he positions me that I love people. And love is our highest value. Do I show God's love to people? But here Peter says, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? The reality is we get harmed. We live in a strange world where doing good in the name of God is seen as a bad thing. Can I read you a story? 2015, the 13th of November, published in one of our local newspapers. Story from Cape Town. Let me just read you the first two paragraphs of the story. He's a Christian first, then a bus driver. That's the word from the My City bus driver who lost his job for leading passengers in prayer at the start of every journey. But even though a prayer that lasted less than 30 seconds has cost him his job, Jerome Rose said on Friday he would not lose faith. That's okay. God has bigger plans for me, he said, hours after a disciplinary hearing resulted in his dismissal. 
Now, I know the story developed further. But here's a man, bus driver, that felt more than just being a friendly, good bus driver, which in and of itself is valuable. It's wonderful. It's, it's a way to serve God and to bring God's presence into places. He felt, man, this is South Africa, and we need to pray while we're on our roads. Amen. How often do you pray when you drive on our roads? Man, we are, I mean, having driven overseas now again for a while, we are some of the most violent drivers I have ever seen. I mean, for us, driving is like some expression of, I don't know. So he felt, I'm going to just pray. Every journey I start, I'm just going to pray. So simply what he did with the passengers when they came on, he said, can I just pray for us? Do you think he did that because he wanted to do good? Was that his motivation? Just to do good. Lost his job. That's the strangeness of the world we live in. We have a hope, and we have a reason for that hope, a good reason for hope. But yet that hope doesn't always land very well in this world. Therefore, it is required of us to have a reason or a defense or an answer for the hope we have. Not an academic answer, not a, a, a philosophical answer, not an answer that is about you know, answering everybody's questions and ifs and maybes and everything. You're not trying to convince other people, but just knowing this is my reason for the hope I have. Because Jesus to me is real. Jesus to me is everything. And if that's the truth for us, I want to take you to a, another concept that, that Peter mentions. In 1 Peter, he makes use of this phrase. 1 Peter 2 verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Sorry, I'm going to skip over that verse. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I'm sure you've all heard of this biblical idea that Jesus is our cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone, we use cornerstones today, but more for ceremonial purposes. And when you build a building, you'll see there's a stone that they put on a, on a wall, and that stone is called the cornerstone, not really because it fulfills the function anymore, but because it's a sort of special stone with a plaque on it. But in original times, when, when buildings were done, the cornerstone was very important. Now, forgive me for reading Wikipedia's definition. I know Wikipedia can't always be trusted, but they had a good one. So, forgive me. The cornerstone or foundation stone concept is derived from the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation or brick foundation. Important since all other stones will be set in reference to this stone. So in other words, in the in original, you know, in olden times when they built, they put a cornerstone in place, and that cornerstone would be the reference point that every other stone is laid upon. That cornerstone determined the rest of the construction, because everything had to be linked to that. It gave the dimensions, the shape, everything was determined by the cornerstone. So if I put a picture up for you this morning, which is a very simple picture, it, uh, hopefully it'll help you, you see what it looks like, is if you had the, like a little square in the bottom left-hand side. Can you guys, there we go. Can you see the little darker square in the bottom there, bottom left-hand side? That's our cornerstone. Now if you take the cornerstone and you extend it in dimensions and in length and breadth and heights and, and everything, then, then you can big, build a bigger construction 
But the reality is that bigger construction is dependent on that as a reference point by that little cornerstone. Now, the idea in Scripture is this, one of the ideas, is that Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our reference point. Everything we build collectively as the church, individually in our own lives, everything we build references back to the cornerstone. He determines the construction of our lives. He determines the shape of our lives. He is our beginning. Everything starts with Him. If you remove the cornerstone, then the building doesn't have a point that it tries to copy almost in everything it does. It loses that reference point. When you and I say we are Christians, this is basically what we mean. We say our lives are patterned after the chief cornerstone, which is Christ, who came and lived on this earth and said, if you see me, you see the Father, who came and said, let your kingdom come. He became that, that cornerstone for us, that reference point that we look at in everything we do. We look at Christ and we say, what is Christ? How does he do this? And then we copy that. Now, the challenge is sometimes Christ lived in very different times than we did. So there's questions we have that Christ never gave answers to. But if we, if we understand the cornerstone, if we dig into the cornerstone, eventually the principles, the truths that he walked in gives us the answers for life even today. If we meditate upon Christ, if we allow his truth, and remember for us when we use the word truth, it's not a thing. It's not a doctrine. It's not a document. It's not a bunch of words. It's not a book. It's a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Three dimensions of that cornerstone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know how to live your life in 2017, go back to the reference point, which is Christ who pleased the Father in everything he did. If you want to live a life today that pleases the Father, just go to the reference point, which is Christ, and say, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, work in me and through me so that I will live in the same, in the extension of who you were, I can live today. Now, I want to apply that a little bit this morning and take it to a, quite a practical application in terms of our country our reality, and it's not just in our country, across the world, something, problem that we face. In this cornerstone that Jesus is for us, there are four sides to this cornerstone. And uh, philosophers will tell you, and people that study these things will tell you, that if you want to live a successful life in this world, and understand what life is about and how to live your life, there's four questions that you have to answer. There's four things that you have to consider and have an answer for. So whether it's you personally or any system of thought or any philosophy or religion, these four things they have to provide answers for. And how good your answers are in these four things will determine how long, you're, how long you are successful in life. These are the four things. And I put them on that little block. The first one is the question of existence. The question of origin. The question of simply this. Why am I here? Where do I come from? How did I get to be here and why am I here? That's a very important question. That if we don't have an answer for that question, it will have a massive effect on our lives. Now, there's many different ways you can answer that question. 
But for us as Christians, we have an answer that we provide for that question. Now, science looks more at the how, whereas the Scriptures looks more at the why, not that those two oppose each other. They don't have to. They, they can complement each other very well. But when we come to the Scripture, the Scripture does a great lot of effort to tell us why you are here today. Why do you exist? Why do you breathe? Why does this planet exist? Why does the universe exist? Now, one of the key Scriptures that gives us answers to this is John 1. In John 1, this very famous, well-known portion of Scripture, it starts by saying this in John 1 verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. Now, the word, word there is, is the name for Jesus that is given in this context. Now, how many of you know what that word is in the Greek? The word? Logos, which means the truth, the answer, the argument, the understanding. So, it says the following. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. So do you see the Scripture is starting to give you that first line? It's starting to say to you, some give you information about existence and origin. Why do you exist? Why are you here? It's starting to say to you, the beginning was God. The beginning was God. And then he says, God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. Who's this Him? Jesus. So God made, according to this scripture, why are you here today? According to the scripture I just read, why are you here today? Why do you exist? What's your answer? If I do ask you today, why do you exist? What's your answer? Simple answer. Because God made me. Is that your answer? That's what the scripture teaches us. Now other answers that you can provide is aliens. Aliens came, seeded the earth. And I am here today because some alien race has come and prepared a harvest field that they're going to come to in the future and come and reap us all. How many of you, that's a reason for the hope that you have? Okay? All evolutionary theory has the origin of life. Someday there's some explosion that happened, and in that explosion was carried the, 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 the star dust or the cosmic dust that traveled throughout the universe just randomly and at some point started bumping into each other and got together with one another and life was formed. And the reason I exist is just some explosion that happened somewhere long ago. How many of you, that's the reason for the hope that you have? The reason for the hope that I have is Jesus made me. I'm not an accident and I'm not some alien's food. God planned me, and He made me. That gives me the first dimension. And when Jesus came and walked among us, He did it because God made us. The second dimension that flows from that is the dimension of knowledge. Existence needs to then flow over into knowledge. The question in philosophy is basically this, how can you know anything? If I have to ask you the question this morning, how do you know that you are really here? How do you answer that question? What is your answer for that question? You, are you really here this morning? Are you really in Hatfield Christian Church this morning at this time? 55-1, January Masilela Drive, are you really here? How do you know that you are really here? How many of you had dreams recently and in your dream you were in some place and then you woke up? 
and you weren't really there. How do you know that you're not just having some dream? Now you're going, hey, pastor, you're messing with my world now. Stop this. <laughs> now, there's lots of thinking done about this and discussion, and we don't have time. But can I just tell you, as a Christian, the reason I know things is because God revealed it to us. Because God is a revealer. The Scripture says, here ago, again, we go in, one John, oh, in John 1, verse 4, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. Light is a scriptural reference to understanding, knowledge. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God is a revealer. He wants you to know. Jesus said, if you know me, you know the Father. Because God made things, firstly, he chose to make things. Secondly, he said, I want you to know things. Therefore, he gave us a brain that can process information, that can understand information, that can communicate information. So if I have to ask you this morning, if you had to ask me, how do I know that you are really here? Then the question back is, well, if you're not really here, why are you asking me the question in the first place? We know because God is the cornerstone of our knowledge. As Christians, we take everything we know and we say, what does God say about it? How does it fit into the godly pattern? So even when science reveals something, we don't say it's wrong. We just say, how does that fit in with the godly pattern? Because God is our cornerstone. Then the third one is choice. So I was made for it by God. I can know him and myself and others and other things. It's possible to know. Trustworthy knowledge is possible because God is the foundation of knowledge. Then the third thing is choice. Now that I know things, I must choose something. Because I can know everything, but I, I need to choose how I live my life. What is right and wrong, and this is the question of morality. How do you choose? This afternoon when you're at home and you have to think about money and your budget and salaries getting paid, and now you have to, how do you choose what you spend your money on? How do you choose what you teach your children? What are you allowed to watch at, in tele, on television at home? Well, how do, you, how do you just, whatever life is, how do you choose? Because everything has a choice. How do you choose? Now, again, the Scripture gives us this reference point. John 1 verse 12 says, Yet all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. There's a choice involved. Because God made us, because He chose to reveal Himself to us and reveal life to us, He gave us free will. So I can choose how I respond to Him or not. Because real relationship requires real choice. So I have to be able to choose how I live my life. Now Jesus comes and says, choose the way I want you to choose. I have come that you may have life and life in abundance. If you choose according to my pattern, according to the cornerstone, if you choose what I chose, which is to please the Father, you will have life and life in abundance. But choose. Then the fourth one, and I, I, I want to apply this quickly, is then purpose. The fourth question you have to answer. Why? Not only how did we get here, but why are we here in terms of where are we going? What is the meaning of life? Where is it all going to? What is the end going to be? Why? And that makes a massive difference in terms of how you live your life. Now again, if you believe aliens came and seeded you, 
and uh, you are just like some fast food meal that's being prepared for them one day. I'm, I'm being joking, but you understand the picture. It changes the way you live your life. You have to eat a lot more <laughs> to be a good person to fulfill your purpose. If you believe that some big bang explosion happened, and, and, at, you know, and that's what science will tell you, some people in science, is that way, 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 way back in our, the origin of everything was everything started from a little thing that's that big. And then an explosion happened and everything started expanding. But one day the expansion will stop and everything will start contracting. And the end of time, everything will be right back into the same little pinprick hole. Do you believe that's the future? Is that your future? You're going to cease to exist at some point. You, you will just, all of us will no longer exist. Nothing will be. How does that impact how you feel about life? If I ask you as a Christian, what is the future for you? One day, Jesus will come. And he will restore everything unto himself. And we will be with him in heaven. Now, whatever your persuasion of what that's going to look like doesn't matter. We all agree that our end is in Jesus, is to live with him in eternity, to live in a relationship where we love him and he loves us, and where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's the future we dream of. That makes a difference. So how do you answer those four questions is very important in our lives. Now, let me take it in the little bit of time that I have left. And try and just land it in South Africa in 2017. And this is not a South African issue. This is a worldwide issue. In the last couple of weeks, we were shocked in our nation by gender-based violence. As we read stories of Karabu Mukwena, for instance, and others that were killed, maimed, raped, terrible things that happened. And we become aware as a nation every so often it happens that there's an increase in our nation of violence, terrible things. Now here we are, Christians. I want to ask you this morning, what is the reason for the hope that you have for this country and for this world? Because this is not a South African problem. I want to make sure that we understand that. This is a worldwide issue. On all university campuses, they struggle with these realities. In many different places in societies, we struggle with this currently across the world. I want to ask you today, you live here in this country in this time, 2017, in Tswane, where in this past week we saw those terrible posters that were held up by students at the University of Pretoria that said the most awful things about women. I don't know if you read any of that. We see this violence here in Gauteng. We see it all around us. What is the reason for the hope that you have? What is the reason that you can tomorrow as a Christian stand at your workplace and say, I believe that this nation is going to get better. I believe that we will find and that gender violence is not going to increase, but that we can solve this problem. What is the reason for your hope? I want to ask you, because that's a real question we have to face with. Or otherwise, we just, it's not our problem. It's their problem. Jesus, through Peter, said, what is the reason for the hope? Give an answer for the reason. Now, I don't understand these things, and I'm no expert on these things. There are so many 
levels to things like this. And I know there's people in this audience today that these are the things you de- deal with. And you can teach us a lot and help us answer some of these questions. And how do we deal with it? But for- unfortunately, when tomorrow when I'm at work and having a conversation with somebody or in my family, you're not there, I'm there. The experts aren't there, I'm there. And I can either be the person that just talks with everybody and says, yes, this nation is terrible, and provide some answer that is based in my, in my perception, or I can say, this is, this is the reason for my hope that is founded in my cornerstone, Christ Jesus. What does Christ Jesus have to say about this reality that we face today? And how does that impact my life? And I think he has a whole lot to say about it. Not directly firstly, but indirectly. You see, first of all, Christ is the reason for my existence, as he's the reason for every other person's existence. So when I look at any other person, male or female, I see a person made in the image of God. Not made to create me pleasure or created to make me feel good about myself or to make me feel like a man, but created to honor God. That person is his possession. I I must dare value them because they belong to God. If I don't like them, no matter what they've done to me, no matter how they make me feel, they are made in the image of God. The reason for their existence is because God wants to love them. God wants to love them, no matter who they are. If they're beautiful, if they're not so beautiful, doesn't change anything. They are made by God and for God. That's what Jesus tells me, my cornerstone. Secondly, Jesus tells me, in terms of knowledge, He tells me who I am. I don't have to find out who I am by the way I act towards that person. Jesus tells me who I am. He gives me the knowledge of who I am. He gives me the understanding of my place in this universe. He gives me my understanding in terms of how life works. He tells me that. I don't have to exercise my frustrations, feelings, fears, wants, desires, anything on another person to get answers. Jesus does that for me. And that person, for for them it's the same. They will not be defined as to who they are by how they look, but they will be defined by who Jesus makes them. To me, that's a very real answer. Christ is the reason for my choice. If I know God made me and other people, if I know God, what God feels and thinks about me and other people, I can know how to choose my actions and my attitudes and my desires accordingly. Can I choose? Now, the wonderful thing is but that what happens in Jesus for us is that Jesus doesn't only provide us a framework with right and wrong. He also gives us the ability to do right, even though we may be tempted to do wrong. And that's a very real answer for me. It's a very real answer for me. The last one is, where are we going with all of this? What is the future? What has God made us for? What is the future of this country? What is the hope we have in this country? There's a hope for this country. No matter how we struggle with these things and how real and how terrible and how awful they are, as Christians, we have a reasonable hope to stand up and say to people, 
we, things can be better because Jesus said, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said we must love one another. Jesus said the creation, or Paul writes, the creation waits in eager expectations of the sons of God to be manifest. We have a hope for a future. And that means if I can change my behavior and if I can live according to the Jesus pattern, I can be an influence that can help things be go better. There's no just, ah, whatever. It's all predetermined. We don't really have a choice. We're fighting against our inner animal urges. Because you know, that's some people's answer. Man was not made for monogamous relationships. Man was not made to limit his sexuality. Therefore, we have to do certain things so that, because it's just in our nature. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and taught us a better way. We don't have to just live according to our nature, our fallen nature. You have made us new. That's the hope that we have, the reason for the hope. I know there's much debate, just one point, and I know there's much more to this complicated problem than just the issue of pornography. But let me just touch on that for a moment. I know it's Sunday morning and it's church and it's not the kind of things we want to talk about. But for years and years, this debate has been raging. Does pornography have an effect on the way people treat each other? Is the question. And lots and lots of money have been done and lots and lots of studies, and I've been reading some of them, have said there's no correlation. You can watch whatever you want. It'll not affect the way you treat people. It's basically the point that lots of people try and make. But it's interesting that of late, of the last five or plus years, the studies more and more are saying something different. More and more the studies are saying, not Christian studies, I'm talking about secular studies, that there is a correlation between pornography and gender-based violence. Now, I, I'm not, these are bigger things than what I understand. But if I bring it down and I try and wrestle with these things, you can read studies, for instance, that the Huffington Post spoke about recently, 2011 study, that analyzes the effect of pornography. It says the following it found that 83% of those who used mainstream pornography expressed greater intent to commit rape should they be assured they wouldn't get caught. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Time will tell. These things... But I like the point one person made, a person from Australia, when they said this. We have a multi-billion dollar industry all across the world called marketing. Simply based on this idea. How many of you are involved in marketing in, this, in, the, in the congregation here today? It's a good thing. You don't have to not put your hand up. It's a good thing. Okay, I'm not going to nail you for anything. But the marketing industry, all the money we spend on marketing is simply based on this idea that what people watch determines their behavior. When you drive down the N1 or the R21 and you see the big billboard, there's not a lot of text on it, but a lot of picture and a little bit of text. Why? Because what you see has an effect on how you behave. And they're trying to sell you things, behavior. You need this car because it plays into this behavior, and it all is very emotional. And we always understand it and agree with it that what you watch determines your behavior. But interestingly enough, not so with pornography. That's the reasoning. You can watch whatever you want. You can, you can partake in as much as you want. It will not affect your behavior. Does that sound logical to you? We must think about these things. And I'm 
I know there's, there's bigger issues at stake and other things also. But I think when Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 28, and I'm coming to an end. Worship team, if you guys will join me, I'd appreciate it. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can we apply that in 2017? If our cornerstone has that idea, how do I live that as a Christian in 2017? Is it really something that I should state before myself? I think Jesus is saying, if you, your, your heart follows your eyes, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for our nation? What does it mean how we position ourselves as Christians in this nation? Now, we cannot just zero in on one thing and think we're going to answer all the problems because we deal with this. But I think in, person, in, in terms of our person, just who I am as a person, it's a good place to start. Are we standing, are we resisting these issues in our own lives? No matter how many shades of gray you want to bring, do we have a secure base that says, no, people are not objects they are made in the image of God for his purposes and for his pleasures my highest my highest value in life is not to enjoy myself and to live out all my desires my highest value is to love God and to live according to his pattern that's my highest value and how does the scripture and God help me and I want to encourage us to think about these things. I, I, I can't answer these many things. But I think if we could sit and really think and say, Lord, help me. Tomorrow you're going to work or spending time with people. And they talk about these things. And you can be a salt, the salt or the light in that situation. You can bring a bit of truth. You can be the one that stops the rot. Or just stand by and, and feel I, I, I can't say anything. I don't know. You have a reasonable hope. Be prepared to speak about that hope. Do you have a hope for this nation? I want to ask you that question again, and I want you to stand with me as we think of that question. Do you have hope for this nation? Not just some fanciful imagination, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Not just some... I close my eyes and everything's just going to be okay, hope. But a hope that is founded in the rock of all ages. If you build your house upon this rock, it will never be shaken. I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to have the deep answers and the theology and the philosophy. I don't have to have of that. I have Jesus. And He's real. And by His Spirit, He's alive in me. And by His Word... I can engage with truth and with life. So let's just close our eyes this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, we can so easily feel overwhelmed by this world and feel at times, and I know I feel that way, I just want to withdraw and just hide. And I think it's okay to do that at times. Your word says that you are our hiding place. That we will hide under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. It's okay to do that and to be at a place where sometimes we, we just retreat and, and, and just come to you. Because you are the cornerstone. And, and we want to come to you 
Not just so that you can comfort us, but so that, Lord, you can help us. So that through us, truth can flow in every place where, you, where each of us has a bit of influence or a, where we, we can speak, Father. We can bring your, your pattern. I pray for every one of us here this morning. Let hope be alive in us in Jesus' name. Hope be stirred in you this morning for this nation and for this world. Let hope be stirred in you. That no matter what the newspaper will read tomorrow, no matter what happens to the economy or what people do to one another, there will be a hope inside of you. A hope that says, my Jesus. My Jesus. Are you open to that hope today? Just open your heart right now and just receive the hope which is Christ. Perhaps without you even thinking about it, hope has been but dwindling inside of you. Just say, Lord, thank you that you are my hope. And then I pray that as the hope rises within us, that we would have the ability to let Jesus be the real cornerstone of our lives, our truth. And that we will take Jesus with us. And that we will be the salt and the light. That we would be able to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That even when we do good and people turn against us, we will have an answer for the hope. Because the darkness cannot extinguish the light. The light always wins. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we pray for our nation today in Jesus' name. We pray for the issue of gender-based violence. And Lord, we, we don't just pray for a headline issue stuff. We pray for people. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us in our nation. That we will turn this thing around. And that our children will live in a safe place where there's honor and value and respect for one another. Across gender, across race, across age, across everything, we ask you for that because that is your truth, Lord. That is your pattern. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We would love to pray with you this morning. If you want us to just pray for you with, for anything, just come. Our team will be here. They'll pray with you. And I want to bless you in this week as you go. Be the salt and be the light in Jesus' name. Amen.